0: 50 as we continue in our series on the Psalms, our Summer in the Psalms series, and uh, what you'll see as we come to Psalm 50 is that it is a Psalm of Asaph, a Psalm of ASAP, so if you're not much on Old Testament history and Old Testament scholarship, let me try to explain who ASAP is to give you kind of some context. To the song we come to today in our series. Asaph was actually recruited by David to be a uh, basically a song leader in the temple, in temple worship. And Asaph was one of those singers, one of those who was supposed to lead in song. And Asaph is given the credit for 12 Psalms in the book of Psalms. So this is one. And then the other 11 are actually all in a row starting at Psalm 73. So that's Asaph. He's a songwriter. And people have pointed out that there seems to be a theme with Asaph's psalms. And that theme is one of kind of sadness or lament or melancholy, kind of reflecting on the sadness and brokenness of the world. And so um, we might equate him to... Uh, people that we know by the name of Vaughn bon, bon Iver, Von Iver, I don't know how to pronounce the name. Von uh, Iver, Sufjan Stevens, uh, Billie Holiday, uh, Blues Music, Leonard Cohen, you know, these kind of emo, grungy, mellow, maybe even depressing type singers, songwriters. Sometimes we get that impression from the songs of ASAP. Uh, y'all know what happens if you sing a country song backwards? You get your truck back, you get your dog back, you get a full beer back, and you get your girl back. All right? Right? Because they big OK, come on now. Here we go. Uh, there we go. All right. Um, so, so ASAP could somewhat be equated to these kind of mellow, sad, bluesy type songwriters. And we might think of that and think, well, why is that in the Bible? You know, we're supposed to be filled with joy as believers, right? We're supposed to praise and worship. Well, the life of a believer, yes, can be filled with joy as we just pray, but at the same time, the life of a believer looks at the world and sees the world for what it is, some something that is broken by sin, that has evil still existing. And so the believer can look with joy and look with hope on our situation while at the same time lamenting and and admitting that things are not as they should be. And this really, what this has in mind is an approach to scripture or an approach to the Christian faith called the now and not yet, that right now we can have joy, we can have hope, we can have life, but at the same time, we're not yet experienced that, experiencing that in all of its fullness. Right now, through faith in Jesus, we have salvation, but not yet have we fully experienced salvation like we will in heaven. Right now, Jesus has defeated the enemy and broken down the chains of sin and death, but not yet have we experienced full Freedom from those things. So, now in this world, we still see the suffering, we still see the sadness, we still see the brokenness, and not yet have we fully escaped when Jesus says, one day there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more death, no more crying. All the pain and all the brokenness will pass away because the new has come. That's the promise we have to look forward to and so there's a now and not yet fulfillment that's going on in the message of the gospel. And so these psalms of Asaph, which we will see today and probably next summer when we get to the rest, really deal with that now not yet terminology. That right now we can experience who God is, but at the same time, He's not yet fully uh, set us free from the brokenness of our world. And so... There is place for mellow, lamenting psalms. And that's what we'll see this morning. So if you have your Bible, please have that open to Psalm chapter 50. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our verses as we come to each section in our outline. And so what I want you to get from this psalm this morning is that God is God. You are not. So don't forget Okay, God is God, that's the first thing. You are not, don't forget it. That's, that's the three things we're going to look at this morning. And so God is God, look with me in verses 1 through 15. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perf- the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills? I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So the first thing we see in these 15 verses is that God is God. We see that laid out in several ways. The First, he says in verse 1 that he is the Mighty One. Notice the definite article, the. He's not a Mighty One. He is the Mighty One. He's the one who has might over all others. He is the most powerful, most mighty person of all creation. He's not of creation because he's the creator. He is Yahweh, the covenant Lord. Notice there again, you've got Lord in all capitals, which reminds us as we're reading our English translation, this is the covenant name of the Lord. This is Yahweh himself, Jehovah. And so he is the mighty one. He is the Lord and look at that. It says he speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. In other words, by, by the word of his mouth, just by speaking, he controls everything. He controls the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, and everything that goes on in between. Every day, all day long, God is in control. That's what that's saying. So he's the mighty one who's the covenant Lord, and he controls all things. That really has to do with the doctrine called the sovereignty of God or the providence of God. That that God not only is the rightful sovereign, the one who is king and who, who is worthy of our praise, but he actually carries everything out according to his plan. And in his providence, which is the making of those things happen... God is completely in control. Nothing happens outside of His power and outside of His control. Even things that don't seem to make sense to us. So God is completely sovereign. Look at verse 2. He's perfect and beautiful and glorious. As God and as the Creator, He's perfect in His righteousness and in His holiness and because of that, He deserves all glory. He speaks and reveals Himself. Not only does He keep silent. Look again at verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. When God speaks, you listen. Where has God spoken to us? In His Word. God has revealed Himself in His Word. You know, throughout the Reformation time, um, do you know what the, the main issue that the Catholic Church had against like Martin Luther and John Wycliffe and these other people who who were reformers really pushing against the authority of the church. you know the main issue that some of them were killed for? It was because they took the scriptures and translated them into the language of the people so that people could read the Bible for themselves. And it was against the law. There was actually, there's a story of a family Where the fathers, how's this for a a warm Father's Day story, the fathers were taken away from the family because they were reciting the Lord's Prayer in English, which was against the law, and they were killed at the stake, burned at the stake, in front of their kids and wives. And we have Bibles in our house that are collecting dust. Now, I I don't say that. It's a blessing and it's a gift from God that he would speak to us. We don't deserve to know anything about it. But he's made himself known in his word and in his son Jesus Christ. So he reveals himself. He speaks to us and reveals himself. He is powerful. We see that in verses 3 through 6. That he is a powerful God. That a fiery tempest goes before him. That he is the judge. He is a just judge who will punish sin for what it deserves. And that as the covenant Lord and as the righteous Lord, He will judge sin perfectly. He's the only judge who knows every act of sin to its full extent, who can punish sin for exactly what it deserves. And He promises to do that. He promises to punish sin for what it deserves. And this God... Who will punish sins. You can't manipulate. You can't buy them off. That's really, I think, what's going on in verses 8-13. through He mentions all these sacrifices. He says, I'm not going to accept your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, all these things. Now, what's going on there? Now, God had told them to present their sacrifices, right? He commanded them to bring their bulls, bring their goats, bring their birds, bring their lambs. He commanded them to do that. So why, why would he say, I'm not going to accept your sacrifice? Well, what's going on here, if you read into that a little bit more, he's dealing with their heart motivation. What's happened is they begin to put on a false sense of worship that if we go through the motions, and if we do you know, these things that God has laid out for us to do, then we're going we're gonna to appease him. We're going to satisfy his wrath or his holiness, and, but we forget God sees the inside. He sees your heart motivation. He sees where you really stand in, in faith, in repentance, in your understanding of the gospel. And so there are people every Sunday who are in church, who, who read confessions, who sing songs, who sit quietly during a sermon. Maybe they hear some words, maybe they don't. Who in their hearts really are not people of God haven't truly believed. They haven't truly seen themselves to be sinners and really deserving God's wrath and punishment, His justice. But who have also seen the grace of God to forgive their sins. And so what does he say instead? He said, instead of coming with your sacrifice, come in thanksgiving. Look at verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high, to the most high, And call upon me in the day of trouble. Now what's going on? What God is saying here is don't just go through the outward motions of worship because you think that's what you're supposed to do. Because that's how your culture tells you to worship or that's what's culturally acceptable. Or because maybe you're convincing everybody in the room that you're a good Christian person. But God sees your heart. He knows if you're really here in repentance and faith, coming to worship Him for who He is. And so he says, don't come with an outward motivation of just playing the part and looking the part. Make sure in your heart you're coming for the right reasons. And what's the right reasons? Thanksgiving. Worship and Thanksgiving. Why? Because God has made himself known, and he's done that primarily in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the sacrifices that were going on in the Old Testament, they were given to the people to forgive them of their sins. They deserved death. God provided a sacrifice so that they wouldn't have to die. That's what sacrifice was all about. But they had made it some sort of outward obedience. They forgot what the sacrifice was actually about. It's the same thing as people seeing a cross or wearing a cross around their neck and forgetting That's where the Son of God was slain because my sin deserved God's punishment forever. You see see how similar that is? How easily we can just kind of go into a Christian morality, culturist culturist society of, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you forget the gospel. And so what we see here is all these things. Now, what does this tell us in this first point? God is God. What does this tell us? About Jesus, well, I have several passages laid out here. I don't know if I'll get to them all, but starting at verse uh, at chapter forty-two of Isaiah, you actually get several descriptions of God from forty-two all the way through forty-five. God really lays out who He is. I just want to read you a few of these. First of all, in Isaiah forty-two verse five, it says this: "Thus God, this thus says God, the Lord Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it." who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. So that's Isaiah 42. Isaiah 44, let me just skip to 44, says this. Starting in verse 3. For I will pour out on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and bl- my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's, I am Yahweh's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. And then 45, Isaiah 45, verse 5, so starting in verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. So these verses, and I can give you several more if you want more, are all saying that God is the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God, is God. As God, He's created all things, He holds everything together, and He deserves all glory. My glory I will give to no other. He deserves all glory, all praise. Now why do I lay these things out in this first point when we're talking about God being God? Well, because it's, it's been a debated theological point for years, thousands of years, it was one of the earliest doctrines that was debated in the church, in the ch- with the church fathers, and it is this, the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, is equal with this God. He is God Himself. That Jesus is actually the fulfillment of these things. That Hebrews 1 says, He has spoken to us in His Son, that John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He made everything. Nothing was made that was not made by Him. That is, Jesus. Colossians 1 says, He has created everything for Him, by Him, for His own glory. That He is the creator, sustainer of all things. And Philippians 2 says that Jesus, because of His death on the cross, because He has risen to glory, has been given the
1: name
0: of, What name? The name that God would give no other Jesus has been given the name because he has already owned that name of the Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus deserves all glory. Jesus deserves all praise, all worship, all obedience, all trust. So that's who this is. God is God. So that's the first thing. God is God. Second thing is you are not Look at verse, uh, starting at verse sixteen. You shall, oh, sorry, I'm I'm still in Isaiah. Uh, There we go, verse sixteen. But to the wicked, God says, "What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers." You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay these charges before you. Now this, this section is really humbling. Okay, it's humbling for us, but it's also humbling In the perspective of, for those who don't know Christ, this is describing them. This is describing where they are. We we believe in a God who is a just God. Who first, this passage first describes us in our state of unbelief. We are the wicked ones. We are the ones who hate the Lord's discipline. We are the ones who abandon God's word and, and cast it aside. We are the ones who keep company with sinners. We are the ones who are the company of sinners. God, in His mercy alone, has saved us from being in that description. Not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. He can declare us forgiven and righteous. But when we first read this, our first thought probably is, oh yeah, this is describing all those things. Right? All those people that don't know God, that don't follow God, all those bad people. But what we should do in our hearts is say, that was me. Or that is me. And, and, and but by the grace of God, there it goes it suits, right there in that passage. So the first thing it should do is humble us for ourselves. The second thing it should do is really cause us, because we have been humbled by this passage, right? Because we first see ourselves in there as the sinner in need of God's grace, deserving his wrath, but receiving his mercy, well then, as we see this describing other sinners, we can have mercy on them. And so this does, I think, speak to our current cultural, societal situation. Let me point out what I mean by that. First of all, it says... In verse 16, that people who are coming again in a false motivation of worship, just kind of coming for external reasons, they have no right to give lip service to God. God, God's not going to be fooled. He's not going to be manipulated by your false worship. We see that in verse 16. And then he says, he starts making these accusations. He says, you hate my discipline. Verse 17, you cast my word aside you have approved of the sin of others. Verse 18. Thieves, adulterers, you speak evil, deceit, and gossip, and slander. Now I know that still describes some of us. And God sits and waits silently. Now look at verse 21. Let's sit there for a second. He says, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. If if you're a Bible reader, the more you read your Bible, the more you'll start to connect passages. As you're reading, you'll say, that reminds me of this passage. And this, as soon as I read that, I thought, Romans 2. You know what Romans 2 says? It says, God in His kindness has waited patiently. That He hasn't poured out His wrath on people as they deserve. He waits patiently says, but you have presumed upon my kindness. My kindness which was meant to lead you to repentance. You have presumed upon my kindness and you continue in your evil. In other words people who are in sin, who continue in sin, who maybe they're warned, you know, God is a God of wrath. He, He will punish your sin. You need to repent and trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe by experience they look around and say, well I don't see God punishing my sin. They presume upon his kindness. They presume upon his patience. And what does this verse say? It says, you you thought I was like you. You thought that I would seek retribution right away. But I've waited silently. I've been patient so that you would have time to repent. It's just like the people in the day of Noah. Noah he preached to them. For years, while he was building the ark, the New Testament tells us, he was preaching to people. He was warning them, the judgment is coming. They thought he was crazy. And and Noah is described as a preacher of the gospel. Someone who warned people of the coming judgment. And the same thing is happening today. But what happens in people's lives? They say, I don't see a judgment coming. I don't see fire being poured out. I don't see lightning coming down to strike me. And what do you get? You get people on their Facebook wall Or people who, you know, wherever they put this slogan, they say, only God can judge me. And sometimes I see that, and in my hardness of heart, I say, yeah, and he's going to. But when I've been softened in my heart, my response should be, friend, he's the only one you don't want to judge me. Because he knows it all. He sees it all. And I promise you, He will judge you one day if you don't come to Him in repentance and faith. And
1: that's what God is really
0: saying. Is, is he's promising that He is a just God. Now, before we move on from this, I wanted to first give you an illustration and then try to apply this point before we move on to our last point. And that is this. care to remember, right? Really, in our inward hearts, we forget things because we don't want to remember them. We don't want to do them right away. So, I forgot. That's one excuse. seven second excuse is, um, well, today, my room's even dirtier, right? You told me to clean my room yesterday, and I had these toys out, but then since yesterday, it's actually gotten even worse. So now, that's not really a fair command. Things are different today. Things are different now. It's a lot messier. That's a harder command to fulfill now. And so I don't think that's fair for you to demand of me that I clean my room because it's worse today than it was yesterday or was, you know, 50 years ago. And God says, no, I told you I told you to clean your room. So that's the second excuse you might get. The third excuse is, I actually like a messy room. I like my room messy. I like being able to see everything. You know, I heard one person say the floor is basically just like a big shelf, right? You just put everything out there, and it's easy to see. It's easy to find. And so I prefer a messy room. I prefer an unmade bed. It makes it a lot easier to get in at night. I prefer things messy. And again, the command was clean your room. I didn't ask you how you felt about it. I didn't ask you what you preferred. I said clean your room. Now, these three examples I've given you of, of a father to a child are the exact excuses you get in our current cultural situation. People say that they don't know the commands of God. They don't know God's word. They've forgotten what he has actually commanded in his word. And God says, you forgot because you didn't care. You didn't want to know what I said in my word. Second excuse, well, things are worse today than they were when the Bible was written. Things are different today. Culture is different. God says, my command is still true. doesn't matter how bad things are. My word is still true. Same yesterday as it is today. Third thing, well, God, I actually prefer life this way. I like doing life my way instead of your way. And God says, my way is the only way. I am God. You are not. And in our cultural situation, I think we can all think of situations situation where that has played out in our culture, right? Where, where people have convinced themselves that the way of the culture, my personal preference, my personal feelings, my personal desires, trump what God has commanded. And so let me just say one thing before we move on. If your God is not allowed to challenge your thinking... Or correct your lifestyle Or tell you you're wrong Or tell you to do life differently Then God is not your God You are And if your God Is not allowed To challenge your culture Or your world Or what scientists say Or what doctors say Or what psychologists say Or what your newsfeed says Then your God is not your God Your world is Do you see that? God is God. You are not. And the last thing we see here is don't forget it. Now, that can sound kind of harsh, right? Don't forget it. But let me just show you what that really means. Mark this, verse 22. Then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart. Yeah, that is a little harsh. And there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Now listen, here's the good news. The good news has to come in light of the bad news. The bad news is, yes, your sins really do deserve God's punishment and wrath. And if you don't acknowledge God as God, he will come in justice. And the the last chapter in Revelation says, I will pay my recompense. I will pay back everyone for what they've done. God promises that as the just and righteous judge. And He knows everything you've done behind the scenes and in the front scenes. He knows it all. But this God who is a God of justice who promises to punish sin also has provided a sacrifice. A sacrifice for your sins. To die the death that you deserve. And that sacrifice was His own son. God sent His Son into the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He sent His Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The promise of the Gospel is even though your sins deserve death and punishment forever, God Himself has paid the price with His own Son. That Jesus was torn apart That Jesus suffered the wrath and anger of God. That Jesus suffered the righteous justice of God that you and I deserve. And so this last verse when it says, offer thanksgiving as a sacrifice. What it's really saying for us in the New Testament who understand the gospel is, Jesus is our sacrifice. Because of that, we can come in thanksgiving and worship him. And as we acknowledge him as God... As a God who is just but also merciful, who has provided a sacrifice in His Son, we give glory to God in that as we worship Him. And then look at that last thing: I will show the salvation of God. What is the salvation of God? That sinners who have rejected God as God, who have lived a life that is outside of God's will and outside of His plan. That if they come to Him in repentance and faith, they will see His salvation. Listen, that's good news, people. That's good news for the worst of sinners. And for the most holy of sinners, right? The one who looks like they've got their life all together. This is good news, that God really does forgive sins. And so, I just watched a documentary this past week called In His Image really laying out the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that that people were made in the image of God, meant to reflect Him, and meant to live as He has designed us. And in that, they interviewed two people. One, her name is Laura Perry, and another is named Walt Tire. And both of these people lived for many years as their opposite gender. They identified as the opposite gender of what they were and it was through faith in the gospel, coming to understand who Jesus was, that they completely their life was completely changed. And now as a response to his good news they're able to say, I, I had completely rejected God's plan for me. But in his grace, he has forgiven me and he has changed my heart and now I want to bring glory to him because I'm so thankful for what he's done for me. I want to bring glory to him through ministry that he has given me now. So they both, they speak, they give their testimony. One has created a website just about, um, not to go into too many details, but uh, reversal surgery and regret that comes from that. And they've started a whole ministry and they said they've reached 50,000 of people, thousands of people with their own testimony. And so this is just one example of God taking someone who had completely rejected God's plan and His design, who God made Himself known by grace, through faith in the Gospel. And this Gospel is powerful enough to change people, including your pastor. So pray for me, and pray for one of you that this Gospel would continue to work in our lives, that we would acknowledge God as God, that we would See more and more that we are not, and that we would see and not forget his grace that he has shown us in the gospel Let's pray, Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for Jesus, the one who is God, the one who made himself known to us as God, who came in the form of human flesh, who suffered and died for the punishment that I deserve, that we deserve. Lord, show us your grace and change us more and more each day uh, to to recognize your salvation, to live in gratitude of what you've done for us, and to honor you as God, to praise you, to give you the glory as you deserve. We pray all this in Jesus' name.